0: To see you. I know people are still making their way in. Go ahead and grab a seat. A nice, firm plastic seat. Make yourselves comfortable. My name is Luke. I see some of you in here I have not met yet, and I look forward to meeting you a little bit later. Um, but I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Legacy Church, and it's great to have you with us. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Malachi 3. And while you're turning there, actually, every week one thing that we do. At, legacy as we talk about one thing specifically per week that God is doing in what we have grown to call Central City, which is primarily downtown north and about 19 adjoining neighborhoods. Um, and as we've been getting to know that part of town more and more on our way there to calling that place our, our home within the next several months or so, I wanted to highlight one ministry that I I got a chance to learn a lot about here in the last couple months, and that's KLF, or the Knoxville Leadership Foundation. had a great opportunity to sit down for a couple hours with their president, Chris Martin. Not Coldplay Chris Martin. These guys couldn't be further apart. (laughs) Coldplay and this guy. This guy moved here about 32 years ago and moved to Mechanicsville, moved his family there, and started what we know now as the KLF. And it's a real interesting ministry because it's like an octopus. It's got things going in all different directions. They work in housing the working poor. They work with home repairs for those who can't afford to do the home repairs on their own home. Um, They develop nonprofits because out of all the entities that are in the world, the nonprofit ones are maybe not the most well-run in the world. So they work with nonprofits. They mentor kids which is pretty cool. We see a lot of ministries in that part of town do that. And then they teach work trades. So some of these things I'm instantly attracted to, like the housing of the working poor, instantly attracted to that. It feels like a very natural and firm fit. The home repairs, for those who can't afford them in that area, supernatural fit for us. But as I was dreaming and praying for these guys earlier, I started thinking of some of you I had in mind that I really think there's a nonprofit in you. I know that sounds weird, but I feel like there's a nonprofit buried deep inside some of you. And I think a ministry like this could come alongside us and help us develop things to work alongside the church. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on in the sermon. Um, But what I wanted to do today is just pray for Chris Martin and his family. 30 years they have lived in Mechanicsville, right? Back when Mechanicsville was a bit more sketchy than Mechanicsville is today, if you've ever driven through Mechanicsville. And this guy had a vision to make his neighborhood beautiful. House across the street would come up for sale, it was foreclosed upon, he'd buy it. He'd flip it, he'd leverage resources and turn it into something beautiful, rent it out to people. The house next to that, bought it. Bought the one next to that, the one behind him, the one beside him, and started to physically make that neighborhood look beautiful and what he's done in the natural right around where he lives is what he's been doing in the kingdom with the klf so if we could just pray for chris because i really see us doing a lot with them in the future father we thank you for your mission that has been going on for a long time in downtown north longer than 30 years you were very busy among your people even a hundred years ago But, Father, when Chris came along, he did something very beautiful. And, Lord, I just pray that you would nurture his family, nurture his calling, that he does not get stale or feel uh, just totally discouraged, wondering if it's making any, any difference, but you would keep his creativity high and his innovation high and keep him encouraged, Lord, as he does the work of the ministry there in Mechanicsville and downtown North. And Father, we just ask that you would guide us as we walk alongside them, knowing to what capacity we could overlap and do something very beautiful. You're very good to us, and we thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So a few weeks ago, I made the statement that I felt like, in my opinion, the fastest, most effective, and deep way One can become a radical follower of Jesus is through one of two venues, and that is long-suffering or deep stewardship. Deep stewardship, sacrificial, generous stewardship, or long-suffering, right? I feel like those are the the things that really mold us the quickest and mold us the deepest. You know, we all want to grow. Everyone in this room wants to grow, right? And aren't you inspired when you hear someone come up with this great testimony You know, they they tell a great testimony about how they were a drug dealer growing up. The Lord reached them. They they did something, and then maybe like their, their family was taken out in a car accident or something horrible, and they had an opportunity to just give up on God, but they fought through. And you hear this incredible story, and you're like, wow, look how solid this guy's faith is. Look how incredible her hope is. And we want to be like that person, but then we notice that there's a steep price tag that comes with it. Those testimonies don't come cheap when there's a lot of long suffering and a lot of deep sacrificial generosity and stewardship, that is what I believe the kiln that makes a good radical follower of Jesus. We've spent the, basically every Sunday in this new year looking through a series we called Having Without Owning. It's our, it's our look at stewardship, right? We've enjoyed it, it's been good. I've been getting a lot of good feedback on this, but effectively all it is is just how to become a radical Christian. It's how to become a radical Christian. You could just name it differently. It's the exact same material. The hardest thing for us to steward, by far, is our money. It's our money. Therefore, how we handle our money is directly related to our growth as radical Christians. In other words, if you don't do a good job stewarding all of your means, not just what you give to a church or a ministry, if you don't do a good job of stewarding all of your means, And you fail repeatedly at being a good manager. You're going to have a hard time ever being a radical for Jesus. Those who are not radical with what God has given us to steward will never be radical in how they follow Christ. And I know what some of you are thinking, especially if you've been here the last two or three weeks. Luke, are you serious? Are you going to talk for a third week on money? And the answer is yes, and that's only because I can't talk for four or six on money which is what I'd like to do. If you look at what Jesus did, if you were to ratio out all of Christ's teachings, over a tenth, over 10% of everything that he taught had to deal with financial stewardship to some degree or another. It would be like six sermons a year for us right now. So I'm only keeping up with half of what he did by doing it three in this season right here. And I think he spoke so much on it and so fluidly on it because he knows how much our heart is actually tied to our treasure. He gets it. He spoke on it all the time. And so what I'd like to do today is just tie it up. I'd like to tie up the last three weeks, but I I feel like this sermon in particular is going to help us look at finances different because we're going to get very, 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 very practical. And hopefully I answer a lot of questions that you've always had about giving and about your finances. So it is going to be practical, but it also, it's going to look at how our hands handle stewardship and not just our hearts. Because if you've been here, we've been looking at our motives, how our hearts engage finances. What makes you rush to write a check or click give or click donate? Why do you rush to do that? Do you rush because maybe you feel like God is going to give you something or take away a curse from you? Maybe you feel like he's going to blow you up if you don't in some way, shape, or form. Why do you rush to do it? And then maybe why does your heart hesitate in doing it? Like the Corinthians pledging, agreeing, having a good understanding of finances, wanting to give, and then getting right to the last minute to click, give, and then not doing it. Our heart goes one or two directions a lot of times when it comes to finances, and so we've looked at the motives of our heart. Today, I want to look at our hands. How does good stewardship move through our hands, and does it really have a good effect? Does it really accomplish something? So let's look at Malachi three verse 6 through 15. This is a passage that I say this every week, but I really mean it today. This will show us Christ very clearly, I think. God says this through the prophet Malachi. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Now, just pause there for a moment. If you really want to properly read this, you can't just say, how shall we return? You have to go, how shall we return? Because that's how it was said. When they say, how shall we return? They're not really looking for information and steps on how to return. There is a little bit of a tone of self-preservation here. It's like when a teenager says, what did I do? They're not really asking, what did they, they're not looking for you to fill in the blanks on what they did. They know what they did. What they're really saying is when they say, what did I do? They're saying, I didn't do anything. And that is their tone here. That is the posture they're taking with the God that is coming to them. How shall we return? But God shows grace here. Maybe some of you've seen this. God says, I do not change. Because I am who I am, I am not gonna blow you up. God is bearing with them. So, whatever he says from this point on, because it's a hard challenge, whatever he says, just know it's seated inside of a deep love and a deep grace. It's helpful when we read passages like this. He's a good father. He disciplines his kids unapologetically, but he doesn't leave there to be any confusion on whether he loves us or not, right? He shows very firmly that he loves us. We're not confused. You know, this is a nation God is speaking to through Malachi that is their big underperformers. Remember, not too long before this passage was written, they were all exiled, sent off to a foreign nation, losing everything. Why? Because they were massive misbehaviors. They were rebels. They come back, it's been about 70 or 80 years or so, and they are still doing it. It shows just how thick, how thick God's grace is because he is not consuming them. It should also be a proof to you and me, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, it should be a proof to you and me that the Old Testament God is not harsher than the New Testament God, which is something that we hear from time to time. Do you see a graceful God here? He's not consuming them totally despite them, right? Grace is shown totally despite their robbery, because we're about to find out they're deep robbers. Listen, before I even get into it, this, this is good news for us, Let this be encouraging to you and to me, especially if we've been poor with our money. God will not consume you if you've been poor with your money. If you've been robbing God, he does not change. He does not consume us. There was grace towards us, totally despite us. Our underperformance does not bring a a giant foot coming down on top of us. Our underperformance brought Jesus straight to us. So when you look at this passage and when you hear me teach it, hear it with that heart. Okay, it's very important. Let's look at the next verse. I've got to move on. Verse 8. And I'm going to take this just verse by verse because there is a lot of bad teaching here and I'd like to try to maybe help as much as I can, unteach some things as well as teach some things if that makes any sense. Verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? answer in your tithes and contributions. One point that I see in this is stewarding God's treasure is simply not stealing it. It's just simply not stealing. It's not robbery. When God's people act as owners instead of managers, they are robbing. God saw it as robbery, which is a hard word, not just an innocent mistake, not just I'm a a victim of my circumstances, but cold-blooded robbery have you ever been robbed before let's participate raise your hand if you've been robbed god ooh, that's more than i thought come on leave it up there you can't just do this that doesn't help anyone we can't look around Have you've been robbed a lot doesn't it evoke a different emotion than some transgressions against you i was 16 when i was first robbed y'all remember that the ford escort i was bragging about last week that i used to roll around town in It got broke into. Right. And I came out one day to go to school and my Bon Jovi tapes were gone. My MC Hammer tapes were gone. My Run DMC tapes were gone. And I felt just victimized. Now, I was in that was right when everyone was moving from tape to CD anyway. Right. So in my mind, I'm thinking, hey, I'm going to get my Bon Jovi right back on the insurance money. I'm going to get it in CD. I'm going to get one of those Walkmans that you plug into the cassette with that adapter. Remember those? So I I wasn't upset that I lost a value, but I felt humiliated. Not because of Bon Jovi. I'm actually proud of Bon Jovi. I like listening to Bon Jovi, but I felt humiliated and violated, victimized someone would go through my stuff. It evoked a different kind of feeling. You know, it's absurd. What is absurd in this passage is that humans are robbing God. It's absurdity. In TV world... One truism that goes from show to show to show is you could rob anyone you want. You can't rob the mob, though. If you rob the mafia, you're going to end up getting disappeared or buried somewhere. Revenge comes. Everyone knows you can rip banks off. You could rip off the FBI. You cannot rob the mafia. Yet here we have this nation of Israel doing something even worse than that. They're robbing God. Not only was this a foul, it was a flagrant foul because robbery is different from theft and burglary. We use those words interchangeably. They're very different. Theft is just something is missing, right? So, like, I'm in love with this music stand because it's like no other I've ever used, right? So, I'm going to take it home with me. That's theft. Burglary is if you transgress someone's boundaries, you end up in their house or in their property. Whether you take something or not, that's burglary, right? But robbery is flagrant and it's aggressive. It's when I take something from a person. Using some sort of an aggression, sometimes intimidation, but mostly aggression. I'm going to rob from a person. It's over the top theft. And this is the word that God chooses to use robbery. We rob God today. But what we do, and I only know that you struggle with this because I struggle with this, what we do today is we reimagine our robbery into something that is a little bit easier to to, to eat. it's an innocent mistake. It's a financial misappropriation, right? It's, It's because of my circumstances around me. I'm actually a victim when you really look at it. This is how we reimagine our robbery. But God views it differently. God views it as us walking up to him and aggressively ripping a possession from him. Think about it in worldly terms today. If next week comes and goes and Kevin comes up here and no one sees Luke anywhere and Kevin grabs the mic, he says, listen, guys, I've got some really disappointing news for you. So it's real solemn. I'm sorry for the gravity. But we just found out that Luke stole a bunch of money from the church and he bought a jet ski. And the reason he's not here is because he's whipping up and down the Tennessee River right now. He's just throttle out, man, just up and down the river and he's not here. Now, if I came back in two weeks and stood up here and tried to just put it out there how it was just a financial misappropriation. It was an accident. I really just felt like I needed a jet ski and I accidentally found one underneath me on the river. You would all say thief. He's a thief. He's a thief. If you worked at Chipotle and the lunch rush is going nuts and the line is down the side and out the other side and out the door, right? And no one can find you because you're in the walk-in with the guacamole bucket like this and that big spoon they use and you're eating the guacamole and the manager comes in and says, what are you doing? You can't say it's an accident. Can't say I'm a victim of my circumstances. It's thievery. It's theft. It's probably why they don't give very much guacamole anymore. Y'all notice that they quit that? Probably employees eating it all. They're having to ration it now. (laughs) Listen, as we look at becoming radical stewards... Radical stewards, radical followers of Jesus. The starting point is repentance from robbery. It's just repenting from robbery, from robbing God. God saw your tough time. Some of you are going through tough times. God saw that, and he still charged you to be sacrificial. He still charged you to be a good steward. He still charged you to be generous. He still charged you to be consistent and excellent in your giving. It's not God's fault, and you are not innocent. It's a call for repentance. He's an excellent owner. He's given you all the means you need to be sacrificially generous with. He's not a bad owner. We've said this the last two weeks. He would be a bad owner if he didn't give you enough and then obligated you to be good with what you don't even have, but he doesn't do that. He gives you everything you need to be obedient because he's a good owner. So repentance might be in order. Now, a word shows up in this passage that brings a common question, and it's the word tithe. Luke, what does that even mean? What is the tithe in today's world? Is it 10% more or less? What is it? Right? Because the word means 10%. And I think this is a confusing point that separates a lot of Christians. And I'm going to try to bring maybe a different angle to it today. Right? This verse has been used to urge Christians to give exactly 10%. Because remember, last week, I think it's either last week or the week before, we looked at the average Christian that gives in America today gives 2.5% of their annual income, 2.5%. So a bump up to 10% is a 400% increase in church budgets all across the world if that were to happen, right? That's a big, that's a big bump. I think this might be maybe one of the temptations pastors have, maybe, in charging people to meet 10%, using it as an item of law, putting it on you as law. I, I can understand that. Again, sacrificial giving is not defined by an exact percentage, however. It's not. Sacrificial giving is defined by the deficit felt after the gift. So what that means is, is some of you are impoverished, and 2% feels incredibly sacrificial, and you don't know how you're going to get around it. And for some of you, it's 20%. There's no flat tax, If it were a 10% flat tax, it would obliterate some of the impoverished, and it would let a lot of the wealthy right off the hook, wouldn't it? And if it was a 10% flat tax, none of us would have to engage our hearts anymore. We just give what we're supposed to give. It's a law. It's God's law to us. He says, give this much. We're going to give this much. We don't even have to worry about what it does to our motives or anything. But the New Testament, under which you and I live today, it does not give us a percentage or an absolute figure that we are to bring to God. The New Testament teaches us that we should be regular. These are the things we've talked about the last two weeks regular, sacrificial, joyful, consistent, excellent, radical as God has prospered us. He leaves the amount unspecified. That's for you to discover. Verse nine, I gotta move on. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you, right? Okay, big point here. Stewarding God's treasure, it bears no curse upon failure, no revenge upon failure. That word curse, it scares a lot of people, and it is really hurt the way a lot of people read this passage. The word curse was used a lot in the old covenant, right? That was the covenant before the cross, just to make that more clear. It was the covenant before Jesus came, lived, and died, and it, there, there would be blessings for obedience and there would be curses for disobedience. You see entire chapters of the Old Testament dedicated to this. So, and a lot of times these curses, they would manifest themselves in physical ways. So like it would be a corporate, national, I don't know, infertility, or loss in war, or poverty, or they'd get carried off by another nation. It would always be national, these curses, and it would always be physical, outwardly seen, right? So if Israel found themselves carried off, if they found themselves in a, in a place of infertility, if they found themselves in a place of getting whooped by another nation, it would be seen by many, and very correctly in a lot of cases, as God saying, you see this situation you guys have gotten yourself into? You have done this. You've brought a curse on yourself, and now you're walking it out. Congratulations. This is what's going on right here. I think This is where the prosperity message borrows some of its theology. I've touched on the prosperity message the last two or three weeks. And just a reminder, I used to be one of these guys just eight or nine years ago. I was a prosperity theologian. I would teach these kinds of things. I do know a little bit of the motives and what's on the other side of the, of, of the curtain, so to speak. But the prosperity message, just to put it in a one-sentence definition, is if you do certain things, God will do certain things for you. But if you fail in certain ways, God will remove those blessings and put a curse upon you. It was all up to you, right? This is one of the places where they get some of their theology. But the cursing that God is talking about right now, it's not on an individual basis in the New Testament. It was on a corporate and national basis in the Old Testament. You see, the gospel changes the way that we read this passage. You have to remember when you read a part of the Old Testament that it was God speaking to a certain people at a certain time. The cross radically changes a lot of this. We don't operate under this same covenant identity anymore. Right? But don't we struggle with this? When something bad happens to you, isn't it easy for your heart to just kind of go back to maybe if you'd just given a little bit more money, this thing wouldn't have happened? Maybe you can actually get yourself out of that jam if you just gave a little bit more money? I know I can tend to feel like that some way, but I want you to see the gospel in this verse. The gospel is out loud in this passage. You see, in the Old Testament, the entire nation of God's people would feel corporate punishment because of their misbehavior. But in the New Testament, God's people would have their corporate punishment put on an individual. It would be on Jesus. He would feel the curse, not all the people. You see how that switches? Old Testament, the entire nation felt the weight of the curse. Because of their misbehavior. New Testament, we still misbehave, but one individual bears the weight of the curse on their shoulders for our misbehaving. It's the gospel. We see this in Galatians 3. And it'll be up on the screen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I mean, we were a nation of thugs and thieves. Before Jesus found us. Before Jesus found us. And the curse that should have been hanging around our neck, he took it off and put it around his own. We should be rotting in an eternal poverty. But he impoverished himself and walked among us. It is God taking his own curse upon himself that changes us from being thugs to being royal worshipers with with royal blood coursing through our veins. This means a few things. This means that if you steal from God, it means that you losing your job and getting in that car wreck, that's not God getting back at you. Think about that. It's not. If you, like a Corinthian, have rushed to give or maybe had some good intentions to give, but right before you click give, you just decide not to do it. I'm just not going to do it after all, right? And then you get cancer. Or your mom gets cancer. That is not God getting you back. That's just not a Christian thought. Now, if you were a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim, then fine. That fits within your theology bracket. But if you're a Christian, you check that karma at the door because God does not change. That's how we started this passage off. He does not change. There is a grace to him. I do not change so you are not consumed. It's important that you know this, especially in this part of the passage when he uses the word curse. Okay? Verse 10. Verse 10 got to move on. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Here we go. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Big point here. Stewardship of God's treasure should be placed abundantly where you are connected and resourced. Notice I didn't say completely, just said abundantly. Stewardship of God's treasure should be placed abundantly where you are connected and resourced. So when Malachi spoke these words of prophecy, people connected to each other at the temple. They connected to God's ministers at the temple. They connected to God at the temple. The temple is what birthed all benevolence, critical care. That's where everyone gathered to worship. It all centered around the temple. And back when Hezekiah was the king, there was a revival And people were bringing so many riches and tithes and offerings and gifts to the temple, they didn't have room or any architecture to store it. So he said, we need to build some storerooms. That's where they came from. So they built some storerooms. They radically altered the architecture of the temple to hold the riches from the people. It's interesting, isn't it? So God effectively is telling them to bring their full tithe to a place where God's work is being done through God's workers. And that is typically through reaching the needs of the city and developing times where we can gather in worship. These are the primary functions, okay? So hear me clearly. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Because this passage has been used by many pastors, good ones, really, really, really good pastors, to say that the local church is the storehouse. The local church is not the storehouse. As much as I want to agree with that, I cannot. I cannot. It does say bring the full tithe to the temple, but the temple's not made of sandstone anymore. It's not made of limestone anymore. It's made of living stones now. The local church, the local church is not a better temple. The total corporate and scattered, dispersed people of God are the new temple. You and I are living stones that make this temple up. That's why I have a hard time saying, bring all of your tithe here. I don't see it supported in Scripture anywhere. Let's look at 1 Peter 2. It'll be up on the screen. As you come to him, this is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, Living stones, part of a better temple, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So look at the biblical, this is what we call biblical theology. As you trace the thread of God's presence, you will see that in the early days, God's presence dwelled in a tabernacle, being carried around on the shoulders of the Israelites as they walked and tromped all the way through the desert. Later on, God's presence would dwell in the temple, no longer mobile, but seated in a physical nation. Then God's presence would dwell in a man. Dwell in a man, come as Jesus, God among us. And then later on, there would be a church. And God's spirit and his presence would dwell in a better temple made of living stones, the church. I think this gets confusing sometimes because of what we see in what we would call the parachurch organization, This is how this happened, by the way. Some of you, just to give you like church history in one second, in the 20th century, especially the early 1900s, you'd see the church start to splinter and fragment. You'd see dozens and dozens and dozens of denominations and allegiances and hundreds of flavors and philosophies and burdens and theological structures. And what would happen is the average size of the church would get smaller and smaller and smaller as it splinters and fragments further out. And if you were in one of those small churches, as you are today, and you had a specific burden for something, your church was most likely probably not big enough to address that burden. Not big enough to address every burden in society, because churches keep fracturing and getting smaller and smaller. People would have burdens, and their church couldn't do anything about it. And we would be innovators, and we would have great ideas, so enter the parachurch, Parachurch church organization, it's just a ministry that walks alongside a fragmented church for God's glory. That's all it is. So a physical example of this is if we were a church of 4,000 or any church of 4,000 and you have to be 2,000 to be considered a megachurch, which that's a lot of people, 4,000 is a lot, a lot of people, right? If you wanted to tackle a college campus or a prison or some horrible problem in your city, you could probably pull that off with 4,000 people. You could. You have the resources, you have the voice, you've, you've got a lot at your hands. But if you were 40 churches of 100 people, right? Same math, you can't do it. You just can't do it. That's why, if you look at the college campus, it's a great example of this being played out. Typically, there's about 30 campus ministries per big D1 school, which is about what we have here. About 30 campus ministries. Only about three of them, three or four, come out of a local church. They're all huge. It just shows how this plays out over time. The parachurch fills in the gap where the church struggles or size becomes a serious issue. And the healthy parachurch organizations, the healthier ones, understand that they are not churches. The parachurch organization is not the church. Different functions totally. The unhealthy ones are the ones that get confused or they just decide and rebel. I'm going to be a church. We're going to do it better than all the churches as a parachurch. They're totally different. And there are some great parachurch ministries doing some very cool stuff. One of them we just got done praying for. The KLF, Knoxville Leadership Foundation. It's not a church. Chris Martin gets that. Who knows? We're not a church. We're just a parachurch organization partnering with a bunch of churches. They're doing things that we can't do at our size. We just can't do it. Not well. So what do we do? We get behind that as fast and as hard as we can, and we help them push that plow because they're doing some really cool things. We don't declare war on them, but but, yet starving the local church in order to finance the parachurch organizations, in this case, God might call a little bit of theft. I've seen it a lot. I've seen it a lot, how people will say, I give most of my giving to the parachurch, and I only give a little bit to the local church because the local church doesn't need any money. They're, they're already taken care of. It wasn't an option for you. It's not an option. I think a lot of people, they, as we said last week, they disagree with the direction that their church is going. They don't like the fact that their church isn't spending money on reaching the lost, discipling Christians, reaching the city, scattering well, gathering well. They don't like how their church is doing it, so they decide that they are going to take ownership, not management, ownership of their finances and give it where they want to give it. That's called theft. That's not an option. If your church doesn't line up, Find a better church, but robbery is not really an option. I think this is where people get confused. If you struggle with the way your church gives, I get that. I get that. I totally understand it. You just got to find a better church. You just got to find a better church. I think in this passage right here, we see that parachurch ministries, or let me just say it differently. What is most directly responsible for covering you, being responsible for you, connecting you to the city, what is most responsible is not something outside the local church, but it is the local church. I think what Paul had in mind and Timothy and Titus had in mind when they were planting churches is different than a parachurch ministry. It is the local church that we talk about today. Parachurch ministries, they just fill in the gaps. They're very worthy of financing, but they do fill in the gaps. God is concerned by the funding of his ministers, the activities of the the global and corporate church, and even the poor. It's important for us to know this. We do believe here at Legacy Church because the networks we're affiliated with believe the same thing. Acts 29, the Gospel Coalition, the Nine Marks Church, that God's primary vehicle for extending the gospel and his glory to a lost and broken world is the healthy local church. It's the fastest way to change the world. It's the healthy local church. So although me and my family, although we love the parachurch ministries around us, and we do support parachurch ministries, we do reserve the bulk of our finances for the primary temple for us, which is the local church. What is connecting us to the city, connecting us to each other, covering us, being responsible for us, praying for us, pastoring us. I hope that makes sense. And if you have questions on that, you can be sure to email or text them. We'll answer them for sure. But I need to go on. That same verse in Malachi, he says, and thereby put me to the test. That's a struggle for people. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of light. A land of light, says the Lord of hosts. Big point here in this passage is stewarding God's treasure is evangelistic, not consumeristic. It's evangelistic. It's hard for us to consider it that, but when you give your money well, sacrificially, radically, it's evangelistic. It's definitely not consumeristic. Malachi is saying hey, the nations are going to look at you, the people of the world are going to look at the church and go, whoa, look at how good your God is. This is amazing. I mean, just as I look at the church and I see the cool things it's doing in the city, and I see how it's meeting everybody's needs and things are prospering and the seeds that are sown are bearing a lot of fruit, I'm thinking that your God looks better than my God. The idols I I, I worship, I mean, they keep promising, they never deliver, but look at your God. This is what Malachi is saying right now. Now again, the cross changes this passage. So, the question is, Is does God rebuke the devourer for us when we give? Does he? Does he pour down a blessing until there is no more need? Does he preserve the fruit of the field and the vine for us? Does he do these things? The answer is, he's done even more. Because we get Jesus. He's done even more than what this nation of Israel could have ever felt because he's given us Jesus he interprets this passage for us. The gospel is is that people don't look at our physical blessings and say, whoa, what a cool God you have. They look at all the spiritual blessings, which we have all, and they say, wow, what a cool God that you have. We have a worse devourer than just what eats the crops of the field, do we not? We had an enemy chasing right after us on our heels, and God by his gospel and through the work of Jesus, rebukes that devour by the life, death, and life of Jesus Christ. Again, I do think prosperity theology misses this simply because it misses Jesus. It misses Jesus. They don't see Jesus as the satisfactory blessing. So it has to have courtside seats or a private jet. It has to have those things to say, I feel blessed. Look what I have parked in a driveway. Look who I'm married to. Look at my health. And those be the proof text of whether or not you're blessed, rather than the fact that Jesus has done something incredibly radical for you, and that has given you all the spiritual blessings in the world. I think They just miss our king. They miss Jesus in all of this. The prosperity message is not built as much on greed as it is a gospel fracture. People just are not satisfied with Jesus being their blessing, and that is incredibly sad. It's incredibly sad. It's disheartening. It's a gospel fracture. Jesus is not enough for them. Jesus isn't enough for them. They have to have something else, something bigger. In this passage, they might say that your giving activates God to give to you. You'll hear that word a lot, by the way. I used to use it a lot. Your giving will activate God's gift to you. But if you don't give... It will activate God's curse upon you, right? I say that it is Jesus living a life on earth that activated God's blessing to me. And it is what Jesus did on the cross and out of an empty grave that pushed the curse away from me. Not anything I can do, but what Jesus did is the source of our blessing. In this passage, they might see cancer leaving or maybe a new Jeep or something in the parking lot and say, look how I'm blessed. The world is gonna see my new Jeep and they're going to see the fact that i got a clean bill of health, and they're going to chase Jesus down. The sadness, they will. And the God they find will be a gospelless God. Right? I disagree. I say that we live forever, and we won't taste death. And that is part of the message that will cause people to chase Jesus down. You have to be very careful. Very, especially with a church like us, we're wanting to be careful of what gospel we export to the impoverished because that's who we're going to be working with. Deeply impoverished people who will jump at the chance to say, I need a new car. I need a better job. I need a better marriage. Will this God give it to me? Right? Now we do believe that God makes our life better, but Jesus is the source of the spiritual blessing. We have to be very careful. Very careful. The devourer is rebuked, and you live in the land of delight, not because you sent a check to me, but because God sent his son to you. Not because you sent a check to me, but because God sent his son to you. That is why the devourer is rebuked. Death has lost its sting, not because you give so that you can be wealthy, but because God gave in a way that impoverished him. And he is holding a place for you. He is preparing an abode for you. And because he spent himself, you benefit, regardless of whether or not you're a lousy giver. Regardless of whether or not you're a lousy giver, God is building something very beautiful for you. He's pulling out a seat at a banqueting table, but that's so that you could sit there, not so he could take it away forever. That's blessing. That's the source of our spiritual blessing, that's why we give. I think those chasing prosperity down in this passage, they miss it by a mile. They miss it by a country mile. And it's a sad travesty, and it's going to build a pathetic movement of misguided and hurting people that look for something that only the gospel can give them. So listen, when you meet somebody in this camp, a prosperity camp, don't hate them, don't slap them, don't laugh at them. Don't mock them on Facebook. Pray for them. Their heart is broken, and they don't even see the gospel correctly for crying out loud. Their heart's broken. They're looking for things to meet that need instead of Jesus. It's an inadequacy in their theology, sure, but their heart is looking for what Jesus is us. So be careful. Be very careful. Not only will the nation see our true wealth and say, what an amazing God. Even here, Even the people in the church, God's corporate body, will be encouraged. One passage we looked at last week in 2 Corinthians 9, we see this. For the ministry of this service, this is the giving of the funds, right? This is giving money from a body who has the funds to a body who does not have the funds. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, keeping the lights on, keeping the bills paid, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Your giving ends in thanksgiving in the church, and before the world. It ends. You know, as I was putting this together, I was thinking about um, you know, some of the people that we met in the bars when we first started, and we were just in the living room. And one of them, his name was Rob. I remember Rob becoming a Christian, and I remember his future wife becoming a Christian and getting to be a part of watching them grow and, and jump in some of the cool things we were doing in the city. And then I got to marry them, and now they're helping a church plant in Johnson City. It was an incredible story. But Matt Norman paid for that. He paid for that. He was there in the living room. He wrote checks. He put them in the bank. It allowed us to do some of the stuff we needed to do for Rob. There's thanksgiving. Ask Rob. Next time he's here, he'll tell you. Man, I'm super thankful for what God has done. It's the giving of the saints in a sacrificial way that allowed that to happen we were giving away quarters at the laundromat, which was fun, getting to do that. Looking at the tears in their eyes. Listen, they're not crying because they're not mixing their darks with their whites, right? They're not crying because they're so excited that I gave them $4.25 in quarters. They're crying because I remember their name. We remember their story. We're long-suffering with them. Week after week after week after week after week after week after week. week week, They'd cry. It's amazing what God did. Kevin paid for that. Some of you paid for that. How many people will walk in here, hear the gospel, go out, consider it for years, become a Christian that you never even know about? How many people get their marriages fixed in this room or in one of your living rooms? How many lives are changed? How much of the city has changed that you get to pay for? Thanksgiving to God for what God has done. Church planting, thanksgiving to God. New ministries, thanksgiving to God. It does not just keep the nations in a place where they say, whoa, look how cool your God is. In-house, it keeps us thankful for what God is doing. God is good. This is my last point in today's sermon, and we won't talk about money next week. How about that? My last point is stewarding God's treasure will never hurt us and disappoint us. so important you get this. Will never hurt you. You'll never be disappointed. Ever. No one has ever, ever given up anything for God and been shortchanged. Never happened. There's one passage, it'll be the last passage today in Mark 10, 28. Peter's bragging a little bit. He's asking a question, but not really asking a question. He's saying a statement, but he's hoping that Jesus qualifies his statement. That's what he's doing. He says, see, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you, but that's a pregnant sentence. He's looking for Jesus to answer him, even though it's not a real question. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. Not only will you get, listen, I'm not even going to shortchange this verse. You will get blessings today, is what Jesus is saying. Today, hundredfold from what you're getting. What is he really promising, though? You're going to get a hundred new moms? (laughs) Some of you are like, oh, gosh, I hope not. You're going to get a hundred new houses? Are you going to take whatever you sacrificed and multiply it by 100? What is he saying right here? He's saying that there is no sacrifice you will make for Jesus and regret it. That's all he's saying. You can't make a sacrifice for Jesus and regret it. Radical followers don't taste regret in their mouth, ever. Radical followers, radical stewards, radical managers, they don't even know what regret feels like. They've never been ripped off, Ever. The blessing is growth and peace and joy and fellowship and relationship with one another. The unity of the gospel. The blessing of seeing God's work. Watching people grow in faith. This is where the real blessing is. You can't put a price on that. And God says, test me and see if you're disappointed. Return to me and see if you have regrets. Regrets. Go ahead and stand with me. has not God shown himself trustworthy? Test me and see if you're disappointed. Test me and see if you have regrets. Some of us in here, as we're about to go into a, a moment of worship where we'll have music and there'll be communion at the back. Chris will come up and explain how all that works in just a minute. But as all this goes on, I want you to focus on, do I need to repent today? Do I need to repent today for robbery? Not for just being an accidental bad steward who, you know, is the victim of circumstances and probably ought to kind of sit down again and maybe give a little bit of brain activity towards what giving could look like. But I've straight up walked up to God and robbed him. I need to stop. Some of you have got to start there today. But where you want to end is thanking God. Thanking God. He took a curse. He became a curse so that you could become blessed. Hung it around his neck when it belonged around yours. He took a curse, even though you misbehaved. And he has rebuked a devourer who will never touch you if you are in him. If you are in Jesus, that devourer will never sting you, never get you. These are things to thank God for. He's been so good to us. And then to give radically. It sounds like I'm about to pitch like you need to give radically to us. Just give radically. Give radically. Give radically. To give to us, fine. Uh, if, if, if we're a massive part of who you're connected to. But there's some really good things going on in the kingdom. Stop robbing God. Stop robbing God. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for being so good to us. I thank you for showing us ultimate provision. Ultimate sacrifice. Ultimate generosity. Ultimate consistency ultimate joy, all the ways in which you tell us to give, you did it. You've actually given us a portrait, a Polaroid to hold up and say, that's how I'm supposed to look. God was joyful, and he sacrificed in his giving. He was abundant. He was over the top in his giving. He had a smile on his face. His arm wasn't twisted. He didn't feel obligated. It was for the joy set before him. He did it excellently. He is consistent. God never changes, so we will not be consumed. Lord, it seems like such an empty sentence, but there's so much in that. Your love is so good, and we thank you. And As we worship today, Lord, show us where our hearts have become crooked when it comes to giving. Show us where we have been fake owners instead of just obedient managers. And Lord, I know that there are some in here who are far from you and not close to you. But Lord, what kind of God is there besides you? I mean, Father, you, we, I feel like we've robbed life from you. Your deepest treasure we took from you, but we didn't really because you allowed it. You gave Jesus. It was by our murderous hands that we took your son from you, but you gave him all at the same time. According to your plan, way before our plan. So God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that your gift has provided thanksgiving for us in here and the whole world looks on and sees something very beautiful. Lord, I thank you for being a radical giver. I thank you for being a radical giver. And I pray that you would teach me and my kids in this city how to be radical at giving. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.